All right, let's turn our attention tonight to the study of Scripture. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Mark's Gospel, and if you'll just turn to page 1, chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, we'll pick up there. I think Mark's Gospel is in some ways my favorite gospel because it is the gospel that I feel like I have the firmest handle on in terms of understanding the flow of what Mark is saying. Uh, probably the gospel of John appeals to me a little stronger than Mark's gospel because John is so forceful in his declaration of the divinity of Jesus. One of my favorite interactions that Jesus has in all of his earthly life and ministry unfolds in the gospel of John where Pilate sort of pops off in that trial uh, setting and says, don't you know I have power over you? And Jesus says, no, you have no power over me except it were given from above. That tone in the Gospel of John is my favorite thing about any of the Gospels. But the swiftness with which the Gospel of Mark moves, uh, the rapid pace, I've referred to the Gospel of Mark as the action movie of the four Gospels. Um, I, I've referred to Mark's gospel as the gospel for men. For those of us who might struggle with focus over an extended period of time, Mark is always moving to the next episode or the next scene. One of Mark's favorite words is immediately, immediately after, then, next, this happened. And so Mark is moving from scene to scene very quickly, showing us who it is that Jesus really is and what it is that Jesus has really done. And ultimately, what it is that Jesus requires of us. We've talked a few times, if you've been a part of uh, Point Academy 1, 2, or 3, you've probably heard me make reference to the way that biblical writing is often structured. In English writing, the main point tends to come at the front, then there's discussion of that in the middle, and then summary happens at the end. Whereas biblical writing is structured much differently, it's the inverse of that. And you have sort of supporting ideas or topics that are introduced in Russian away from that main point near the end of the writing itself. Mark's gospel is similarly structured in that in the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel, we're told who Jesus is. In the latter part of Mark's gospel, chapters 12 through 16, we're told of what Jesus has done in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's in those middle chapters that Mark emphasizes what it is that Christ requires of us. In other words, because this is who he is in chapters 1 through 8, and this is what he's done in chapters 11 through 16, this is what we do in chapters 8 through 10. Now, early on, I preached a sermon series in chapters 8 through 10, and so I'm not going to spend a tremendous amount of time there. But I do want us to walk through those early chapters of Mark's gospel where it is established firmly who Jesus is. And then we'll touch on something of what Mark has to say in those latter chapters as well. Basically, we're just going to walk slowly through the gospel of Mark and appreciate together the high points of this great and glorious gospel. If you were to take, this is sort of, um, maybe we could put this under the heading of somewhat advanced information, but if you were to go to the book of Acts, for instance, there are 10 sermons in the book of Acts. You have there summary sermons 
of the early apostolic message. In other words, when the apostles were given opportunity to preach, the stuff and substance of their sermons are highlighted there in the book of Acts. What the book of Mark provides us with, and we can see this in the parallels that exist between the larger body of Mark's gospel and the smaller summaries of the book of Acts, Mark gives us a a full example of what the early apostolic message was. In other words, you get these snapshots of early sermons in the book of Acts, 10 of them. But if you want a manuscript on what Peter's sermon might have been at Pentecost, the Gospel of Mark provides us with just that. In fact, Peter is a good example because it was Peter who provides the information that Mark needs in order to write under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit what Mark writes here. The Mark who is the author of the Gospel of John is also a, a fairly important figure in the book of Acts. You may remember that on Paul's initial, initial missionary journey, he set out with Barnabas. Barnabas had a cousin named John Mark, or just Mark for short. And along the way, John Mark made the decision that he wanted to return home. Well, as they prepared to set out on their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted for John Mark to join them again. But Paul, being sort of the brash type A personality that I believe him to have been, would have nothing of it. And there became a sharp contention or conflict between Paul and Barnabas concerning who would be a part of the second missionary journey's missionary band. Because of that tension, Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways. And it was Silas who became Paul's companion and sidekick in the second missionary journey or moving forward from that particular point. But Barnabas continued his work, presumably with John Mark in tow. Now, the tension that existed between them was not the kind of thing that robbed them of friendship or fellowship in the gospel. This is clear in that later in the Apostle Paul's ministry, he requests the company and the assistance of John Mark. He calls for John Mark in the latter days of, of his life to assist him in the work that he hoped to do between that moment and the time of his death. At some point, John Mark establishes himself in the city of Rome where he becomes a companion to Peter. And there are a number of early church fathers that tell us that Peter was the, in, the informant for John Mark's gospel. So here we have what I believe to be a manuscript on an early sermon, a sermon that would have been preached like what would have been preached by any of those early apostles focused on the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, reflecting on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, at the same time explaining what Jesus requires of those who follow after him. John really cuts to the chase in chapter 1. I've mentioned in weeks past that Mark's gospel is the only gospel that does not include a genealogy for Jesus Christ, whereas other gospels include some form of genealogical background. Mark does not include such. He merely begins in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, for the Lord, make his paths straight. And then Mark provides us with an explanation of the ministry of John the Baptist. 
in the same way that Jesus' Messiahship and ministry were foretold in the Old Testament, so too was the ministry of John the Baptist. In fact, not only did Isaiah the prophet prophesy concerning John the Baptist, but Malachi the prophet, that last prophetic book in the Old Testament, likewise prophesies of one who will come in the spirit of Elijah who will pave the way or blaze the trail for Jesus' earthly ministry. In verse 9 of chapter 1, Mark gives record of Jesus' baptism. The Bible says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. And as soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending to him like a dove. A voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. I take delight in you. Here, understand that not only are, are we here peering into a historical moment, Jesus baptized in the Jordan by John. It's a beautiful picture. We are at the same time hearing the witness, not of Mark, not of Peter, not of other disciples, in fact, not of men at all, but the very voice of God from heaven declares, Behold my son in whom I am well pleased. It is the voice of God booming forth first in the gospel of Mark, declaring who it is that Jesus really is and the pleasure the Father takes in him. Rather than the several verse telling of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, John gives us just two in verse 12 and 13. The Bible says here, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals, and the angels began to serve him. In verses 14 and 15, the ministry of Jesus begins, and we're informed of the basic content of Jesus' preaching. Verse 14 says, After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, preaching the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now, in terms of Gospels, this is the earliest telling of the Gospel. Now, sometimes I think we are, fall under the impression that because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come at the beginning of the New Testament, that they are the earliest letters or books in the New Testament. That's not the case. Some of Paul's letters come before some of the Gospels. Even some of those letters that come near the end of the New Testament come before uh, some of the Gospels. Mark is, in my estimation, the first of the Gospels that was written. And we know that because other Gospels are reliant upon what Mark says in his Gospel. There's evidence within the text itself that Mark is the earliest. And here Mark tells us that the message of Jesus in Galilee was this. Repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the basic message of the gospel. If you were here on Sunday morning, you heard Ryan Alva talk about their developing a 20-second testimony, which is a good thing to have on hand with regards to evangelism, to be able to tell your story, the story of Jesus' work in your life 
in 20 seconds. It's a good thing to be able to do that in two minutes. And it's a good thing to be able to do that in 20 minutes. Here Jesus tells us what his basic message is in just a few short words. Repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. Now, this whole business of repentance and faith, these two are inseparably bound together. Apart from repentance, there is no faith. And apart from faith, there is no repentance. And often what you have in New Testament text where it's simply repentance that's referred to or faith that's referred to is the expectation that believers will understand that those two are inseparably bound together. An example of this is like the passage I like to read, and most of the time when we celebrate baptism, I read from Romans 6. Know you not that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And then we talk about what that symbolizes. That passage is really not about baptism at all. In, in fact, it's about conversion. It's about salvation. But baptism is so connected to our conversion experience that late in the New Testament, baptism is used as an almost catch-all term for faith and repentance. Apart from faith, there is no repentance. And apart from repentance, there is no faith. This is critically important. And we need to be careful that as a part of our proclamation of the gospel, we make clear that repentance is the expectation that God has for us. We have to be very clear about that. I, I remember hearing J.I. Packer, who is with the Lord now several years ago. Uh, Packer was an Anglican for most of his life in ministry. Um, and in the days that uh, marital ethics became issues, specifically questions of same-sex marriage, Packer was eventually uh, forced in some ways by his own choice and others by the church in general to remove himself from that fellowship. And his charge against the church was that they had involved themselves in heresy. But his charge wasn't rooted in things that they had said. His charge was rooted in things that they had failed to say. Namely, they had failed to make repentance a part of their understanding and proclamation of the gospel. There was no effort at calling people away from their sin. Now, there ought to be mercy and compassion and uh, grace with regards to our presentation of the gospel but we don't do anyone any favors, nor are we consistent with the message of the Scripture when we fail to hold forth the call of Jesus on our life to repent and to turn away from our sins. It is not that our repentance can save us from our sin. It is that our salvation from sin produces in us a genuine want to turn away from the things of this world. And if we're not willing to forego the passing pleasures of this life for what Christ has afforded us, surely that's clear evidence that we have not rightly regarded what Christ has afforded us through his death, burial, and resurrection. So if you're looking for a very simple, a very straightforward presentation of the gospel, if you're a person who says, I'm reluctant about evangelism because I don't know that I know enough about the gospel to go and share. The message of Jesus is this. 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, it has come down in the person and work of Jesus. And we are to repent of our sins and to believe on him for the salvation of our soul. This is the good news. In the remainder of chapter 1, Jesus calls the disciples to himself. One of my favorite accounts is found beginning in verse number 21 before we get away from chapter 1. Here the Bible says they went into Capernaum and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because unlike the scribes, he was teaching them as one having authority. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now understand the scene here, right? Jesus has, in a first century sense, gone to church. And there in the synagogue, where the law of Moses would have been read, where prayers would have been offered, where incense would have been burned, where various ceremonial practices would have been undertaken, there is one that in his presence acknowledges they are unclean, possessed of an unclean spirit, and they cry out against him, questioning his motives in being in their midst. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But before anyone knows who Jesus is, this man possessed by an unclean spirit knows who Jesus is, and Christ rebukes him and says, Be quiet and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they began to argue with one another, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. News about him then began to spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. We often have questions, I often hear questions about why there is such demonic activity in the New Testament and there seems to be the absence of that, at least within Western Christianity. What I think we see, especially in the Gospel of Mark, I think this is a special point of focus here, is that Satan and his demons have a direct interest in being near where Christ is doing his greatest work. And I think it probably speaks to the tepid nature and the weak spirit of the Western church that we don't see more of things that are similar to what is experienced in the passage that's before us. But it is a reminder to us. It is a warning against us that as Christ settles into our heart, as he dwells in our midst, as he works among us in the most powerful of ways, it is a surefire guarantee that there is demonic oppression that comes with that, that there is direct interest on the part of Satan and his minions in the work we undertake to do under the banner of the gospel and by the power of the Spirit of God. Sometimes we pop off, I think, about our interest in doing Jesus' work without counting much of the cost that comes with that. This is demonstrated in a variety of ways in the Gospel of, of Mark. Chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says that when he entered Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And so many people gathered that there was no room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the message to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four men. Since they were not able to bring 
uh, bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. They removed the roof above where he was. And when they'd broken through, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus understood in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your mat, and walk? But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately he got up, picked up the mat, went out in front of everyone, and as a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have, have never seen anything like this now this is a compelling account in a number of ways right you have to be impressed with the faith and the effort of those four friends who took the corners of that mat and saw to it that their paralyzed friend got to Jesus that's the kind of earnestness that I hope God would stir in our hearts at ensuring that those around us would get to Jesus that we take a corner and do our part, everything within our power to get our friends, our family, our neighbors to Jesus. And, and, then, and then they get him there, and the crowd is such that he has to be let down through the ceiling. Can you imagine what that might have looked like? Now, obviously, it's not a ceiling like we enjoy in our much more modern homes. They would have begun shifting around the shingles, the, the chaff, the materials that would have been scattered atop that home's roof in order to keep them sheltered in rain or storm. Those particles would have begun to drift down and that company of folks gathered there and then they let him down some way in the midst of that crowd into the presence of, of Jesus. And Jesus works this remarkable miracle. And, and in doing so, he reveals to us his motive in the working of miracles. When this paralyzed man is let down at first, Jesus doesn't hasten to this apparent physical need. Rather, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. That's why Jesus came, to seek and to save the lost, not to work miracles. He merely works the miracles in order to validate or to verify his authority as the Son of Man. And he says as much in our text. Now the people look on and they're amazed at the statement and they're questioning in their hearts the legitimacy of Jesus' statement. Who has the authority to forgive sins except God? Jesus says in order to verify for you that the Son of Man indeed has the authority to forgive sins, I'll say to him what seems an even greater miracle, an even greater statement, and you'll see it with your eyes, rise and walk. And this once paralyzed man gets up and folds his mat and leaves the room. Having received the greatest gift he could have ever received, the forgiveness of his sin. And at the same time, having received the greatest earthly gift, perhaps he could have received the healing of this condition. And having verified in the sight of that crowded house 
that indeed Jesus has not only the power to heal a paralytic, but the power to forgive our sins. That's the real truth of that text, isn't it? That Jesus really does have the power to forgive us of our sins. Now, remember what Mark is doing in this section of the Gospel of Mark. He is verifying for us that Jesus is in fact the Son of Man, that Jesus is the Son of David, that Jesus is the Son of God. This is central to Mark's message. The early part of Mark's gospel revolves around what's communicated in these verses, that Jesus really is who you've heard he was, that Jesus really does have the ability to forgive you of your sins. In an eternally significant way, Jesus can forgive us of our sins. Now, I can forgive you of your sin. I can forgive you of something that you've done. But when Jesus grants forgiveness, this bears eternal weight and significance. When Jesus says, I forgive you your sins, or son, your sins are forgiven. What's intended by that is that there is going to come a day at the end of your earthly life when you stand before God and on the basis of Christ's declaration over your life, by repentance and faith, under his shed blood, by the power of his resurrection, God will declare you not only innocent, but holy and blameless and righteous because of what Jesus has done and what Christ has stated on our behalf. This is really a beautiful, beautiful thing we see unfolding here in our passage. Look to chapter 2 and verse number 13. This is more time than I intended to take in the early part of Mark's gospel, but all of it's good. In verse 13, the Bible says, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and the whole crowd was coming to him, and he taught them. Then moving on, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he got up and followed him. Now this Levi is the Matthew of Matthew's gospel, and he's a tax collector. And I, like I know that the IRS is not our favorite government entity, and, and even so I signed up for this service where whatever I'm getting in the mail that day, I get an email early that morning with a picture of the mail. And just an email with a picture of mail that comes from the Internal Revenue Service has a way of striking fear in my heart, right? Like I do, I do not look. And now that now because I have signed up for this service, half of my day is ruined worrying about what this piece of mail is going to be about when it finally arrives sometime around noon to one. I need, I need to get my name taken off of that list to alleviate that stress in my life, popular in American culture. But what the IRS does at least is legal. It may not always be moral, but at least it's legal, right? But tax collecting in the first century is an entirely different enterprise. It revolves around extortion. There is no pay, at least no substantive pay, for the tax collector employed by the Roman Empire. 
He, he's given a, a list of those who are to be taxed according to the census, and he's given a rate at which they are to be taxed. But if he is to make any money for himself, at least any money of substance, then he must add those service fees to the taxes that have already been levied by the Roman Empire. Now, what this means is that the tax system, especially the system for collecting taxes in first century Judah, is rife with all kinds of corruption. Because the standard of living is always changing, right? And you've probably experienced in your own life, it doesn't matter what the raise looked like last year, you're always looking for a little more the next. It doesn't really matter what you have amassed for yourself. There's always someone who has a little more. And we're always sort of compelled to keep up with the latest and the greatest. Well, when your salary is on a sliding scale and your finger is on the scale, it doesn't take long for things to get out of hand. You, you add to that the ethnic and cultural conflict that sort of revolves around this whole tax collecting process. And it really gets sticky. Because here we're talking about the nation of Judah, the chosen people of God, a nation that is bent over the course of its history on their absolute independence from any neighboring nation. And given their chosenness by God, their unique monotheistic commitments to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the pagan nature of all of those nations that surround them, and the pluralism of the Roman Empire that now bears authority over them. Not only do you have someone who's come to extort us of our worldly goods, you have someone who has come as a representative of a nation that does not know our God, come to impose his religious convictions on us and to chide us for our religious convictions. Then there are times when there are citizens of Judah who are in the eyes of their fellow countrymen turncoats and that they have aligned themselves with the Roman Empire. What I'm telling you is this. Levi, or Matthew the tax collector, is not a fan favorite in Judah, nor is any other tax collector. Here, here we're not dealing with the down and out. We're dealing with the up and out. In the upper echelon of governance, where, where funny business can, can be had with regards to money, Jesus reaches into that segment of Judah. Jesus reaches into that people and saves Levi, Matthew the tax collector, and calls him to be a disciple. The closest thing I know in our setting, Jesus calls the first century version of a Bernie Madoff to salvation and enlists him as a disciple. Now, if that weren't outstanding enough, Jesus reaches into yet another difficult and, um, and regarded as unclean segment of the population in verse 15. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also guests with Jesus and his disciples because there were many who were following him. Now, this is sort of a strange party because you have the up and outs the white-collar criminals in Judah, and the down-and-outs, the sinners, as they're uh, referred to here in our passage. Now, these are those on the low rung of society in first century Israel. 
These are those who would later be described as involved in prostitution and drunkenness and various other activities that even in our culture would be regarded as less than moral. And so you have this gathering of up and outs and down and outs, and the centerpiece of the gathering is none other than Jesus himself. You, you, will, you will never manage to get so high and mighty that Jesus cannot humble and save. Nor will you ever manage, even in the throes of your depravity, to get so down and out that the arm of Christ cannot reach to pull back. In verse 16, the Bible says, When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he told them, Those who are well don't need a doctor. But the sick do need one. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, most of the time when people read these verses, they think that what the Pharisees are saying is, I can't believe that Jesus is spending time with those people. They're undeserving of the company of a rabbi. And there's, there is a touch of that in what they say. But maybe more than that, what they're saying is, why is he even fooling with those people? There is no hope for those people. Those people have always been that way, and they will always be that way. In, in other words, Jesus, why don't you invest your time, your attention, your ministry on, in some people, with some people that actually deserve time energy and ministry that is not at all the way jesus looks on his people and it's not the perspective that we ought to have i think it's a really distasteful thing when i see churches who abandon their community when demographic shifts happen and things get somewhat more difficult i think it is a decidedly jesus-like thing to run to people and communities that the rest of the world would run away from. Jesus doesn't run away from trouble. Rather, he runs to troubled people. And he reminds them here, those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do need one. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And another manuscript says, sinners to repentance. Now, the trick in understanding what Jesus is saying here. It's, it's uh, just a touch tongue-in-cheek in my estimation. The trick is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The problem is the self-declared righteous are not in a position to well see their desperate need for grace and mercy. Often it's the down and out who've come to the bottom and realized that the only hope is to look up to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a question about fasting and a, questioning about the, a question about the Sabbath in the remainder of, of chapter 2. By the time we get over to chapter 4, and I realize I've almost exhausted our, time, exhausted our time in these early chapters, but by the time you get to chapter 4, we have a series of parables that are told there. One of the most exciting stories in the Gospel of Mark comes in chapter 5 when Jesus cast out a demon from a man, not one demon, but a legion of demons and cast them into swine who run off into the sea and drown. 
That man, once possessed by those demons, went out and began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. This man bearing witness to what Jesus has done in his life. Again, this is what evangelism looks like, with our hearts bursting with enthusiasm at what Jesus has done for us. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard by the power of Christ. Jesus is rejected at Nazareth in chapter 6. In chapter 7, there's a back and forth about a variety of traditions, the feeding of 4,000 in chapter 8. And then we come to that middle section of Mark's gospel. I told you, told you in the beginning that Mark is saying in the first eight chapters, this is who Jesus is. In the latter part of Mark's gospel, this is what Jesus has done. But here at the center, in what I believe to be the apex of Mark's gospel, Jesus is saying, this is what is required of you. And, and I really think that not only this is the central section, but there is actually a central passage in verses 34 and following of Mark chapter 8. In verse 34, the Bible says, summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to be my follower... He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I really like this passage for a variety of reasons. <clears throat> Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, you must take up the cross and you must follow me. This is before the cross became religious iconography for us right like in the first century no one wore a gold chain with a cross on it jesus says if you want to follow me you must take up the instrument of death and come after me do as i do follow after my pattern of life mimic me Sometimes I get in conversations with theological conversations with people that want to talk about eschatology, the study of the end times. People get really fixated on that. Do you know what the, you know what the eschatology of Jesus is? The end times theology of Jesus is? Take up your cross and follow me. And what I mean by that is that the way of victory for the church, the way the church overcomes and the way Christ's kingdom is advanced is by his people taking up their cross and following after me. What the book of Revelation makes clear is that the way to overcome, the way to victory is not by unsheathing our sword, but by holding fast to our confession that Jesus Christ, not Caesar, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and we are willing, if necessary, to lay down our lives for that confession of faith. And the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Everywhere you cut down a Christian, there, there's a dozen more that grow back in his or her place. Christ is pleased to work in this way, right? Jesus is saying, if you really want to be a part of the advancement of the kingdom, you must die to yourself to your wants, to your wishes, and under the right circumstances where it becomes necessary, you may even die physically, literally, holding fast to your confession that it is I, Christ, not Caesar, 
not us, not me, not you, not anyone else who is truly Lord. We could spend the next years wringing the truth out of this simple verse and never exhaust it of all that Jesus intends in these few short words. But you hear me. The central message of Christ for his followers, for his disciples, is this. Take up the cross and follow me. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, for the encouragement we're provided through the gospel of Mark, for the reminder of the high call that Christ has placed on our life, the urgency to take up our cross and to come after you. God, the circumstances of our life are relatively easy. There is no great threat of persecution, certainly not the persecution of our, our bodies. Our lives are not in jeopardy because of our faith in you. None of us drove to church tonight with paranoia or suspicion that someone would be after us because of our faith. And in spite of the ease that you've been pleased to grant us, God, we can wax cold in our willingness to take up the cross. God, I pray that you would make us persistent followers of Jesus, having repented of our sin and believed firmly in the finished work of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin, glad-hearted and mimicking the pattern of Christ's life, not just in, in, in the simple steps, the small things that we see. Truly, surely, we want to honor his command and follow after his teaching. But in the foundational principle of his life, willing to lay down his life in humiliation, now granted the name above all names. God, I pray that you would give us a willingness to embrace humiliation that we might enjoy eternally our exaltation beneath the feet of Christ, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. God, I pray that you would hide the words of Mark's gospel away in our hearts that we might not sin against you. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.